Welcome to CropSense, presented by North Carolina Cooperative Extension. I'm Jacob Morgan, field crops agent with North Carolina Cooperative Extension. Today we have Dr. Matthew Van to discuss tobacco transplanting. Good morning, Dr. Van. Welcome back. Good morning, Jacob. Always good to be with you. Appreciate the invitation. Anytime. So today is April 8th, and so my first question is, how has the greenhouse season gone so far? So our greenhouse season has, has gone extremely well, in my opinion. You know, I think back over the last, I'd say maybe two or three uh, greenhouse seasons, and this season compared to those has been much better. It seemed like our uh, greenhouse seeding time frame back around Valentine's Day going into to late February, we had some favorable uh, weather conditions with good sunlight and those kind of things. So it seemed like our growers were able to go ahead and get into greenhouses, get the greenhouses sown, and as a whole, We've had a, a relatively good season. I think we'll have a good plant supply. I can't say that there will be an overabundance of transplants, um, but I do think that we'll have good quality transplants that are, you know, I guess now ready to go to the field. All right. Can you discuss the best practices for getting quality plants out of the greenhouse and, yep. and into the ground? Yep, sure. So, you know, one of the things I think about as we as we get close to the end of greenhouse season I really like for our growers to pay close attention to, to what those plants look like and really in terms of disease. You know, we do have a few stem rot diseases and even some leaf spot diseases that we sometimes see in greenhouses. And if there's any way we can keep those diseases, you know, minimized, be it through applications of, you know, some of our fungicides like Quadris or Manzate Pro Stick or even some of our bactericides like, you know, Harbor or some of the other streptomycins to keep being bacterial soft rot at bay. We've got a few tools in our toolbox. They're not many, but we do have some really good tools that we can use to, again, pr provide some seedling protection while we're still finishing up in the greenhouse so that once we start getting into the field, we're not sitting there trying to thumb through you know, plants that do have some stem rot or do have some leaf spot problems. Again, I think that starts us off on the right foot. You know, I also think that in terms of quality plants and having good success at transplanting, we need to look at, you know, our extended forecast. And right now, I think our extended forecast, particularly in the southern and central coastal plain, looks pretty good. You know, I think our daytime highs are looking really good. I don't have any, any concern there. We do have some cooler nights in the forecast, but certainly nothing that, that looks like we're close to freezing. I don't see any big rain events that are giving me any big concern. So if we can look at that forecast and, and again, avoid any potential frost problems as we start to get closer to the field, those are going to be my bigger considerations, you know, as I think about, again, just trying to get out of the greenhouse and get into the field. You know, one other thing that I often think about in terms of plant quality you know, I, I like to see plants clipped, you know, either either the morning they go to the field or the, the maybe afternoon or evening before they go to the field. They're typically growing very rapidly this time of year. And when we take just a little bit less vegetation to the field, they go through our planters, our transplanters a little bit better. You know, I think we've just got less leaf material there for some of our uh, early season insects to come in and feed on. And I, again, I think they just do much better, got a little bit more vigor to them when they go in the ground. So just another consideration that I've seen over the last couple of years. How much impact does planting depth, you know, how far we get that transplant into the ground, does that make much of a difference? 
You know, it does. And I don't think that's something we talk about a lot. And I don't know that it's really something we've got a lot of data and a lot of research to, to back up some of the comments that I'll make. But I, I always tell growers, go ahead and set those transplants just as deep as you can without covering the bud of the plant and without, you know, possibly hitting the bottom of the furrow and causing a, a J root effect. You know, I really like to see those plants put a little bit deeper in the ground, I think, than most growers typically do. I mean, we're, we're not talking about, but maybe another inch or two with the root ball depth. But I think that putting that plant just a little bit deeper in the ground provides just a little bit, again, a slightly deeper anchoring point to give it a little, possibly a little bit deeper rooting depth. And, you know, we think about some of those older leaves, you know, traditionally we would call them plant bed leaves that might fall off of plants. You're going to have some, what I would call a bare leaf node uh, there that, that could be exposed, you know, if you don't plant the, the uh, seedling terribly deep in the ground. When you have that leaf node exposed, you know, to sunlight and again, open growing conditions, sometimes you can have ground suckers come off of, of that leaf node. So, you know, I always say that when we get those plants a little bit deeper in the ground, I think we might see less ground suckers. Ground suckers aren't something that I think we really battle in today's production systems with modern varieties like we did 20, 30, 40 years ago. But the point being, the deeper we can put that plant in the ground, I think it's better protected from sandblasting and all those kind of things. And I just think it's a, a good practice at the end of the day. So there's really no hard and fast rule that we need to be X number of inches in the ground. I just like to go ahead and put that those seedlings as deep as I can get them without burying the bud. And again, certainly without J-rooting uh, some of the root system and lower stem parts. So our first controversial question of the day, uh, transplant water is always a big discussion point. So what are yep. your recommendations as far as transplant water? Yep. So, you know, we go back to uh, some of the Bill Collins uh, statements that he made when he was uh, working heavy in extension. And, you know, the best thing to go and transplant water is just water by itself. There's no doubt about that. With that being said, we know we've got certain situations where there is, is some advantage to including some of the pesticides that are labeled for inclusion in the transplant water. You know, I think about our current black shank situation, and while we do have some incredibly great varieties that have very high black shank resistance, we need to offer some early season chemical protection you know, for those plants as they go to the field, particularly if we are going into fields with a known history of black shank. So, you know, I'd offer up throwing a, a transplant water fungicide such as Arondis Gold 200, uh, you've got a Rondus Ultra B that you would pair with that, or just Ritamil by itself, Ritamil Gold SL. Those to me are, are probably some of the biggest things we need to think about, again, as we talk about black shank management. We've seen, in my opinion, a shift of growers that have stopped making greenhouse trade drench applications of Admire Pro or some of the platinum, you know, we're talking Amidacloprid, Thymethoxam type products and they're now putting them in the transplant water. I'm not going to, I'm not going to really discourage some of that. We certainly need some, some early season protection from those early season flea beetles and thrips and uh, aphids. And that's really where we're going to get the bulk of that protection from. So whether it's in the transplant water or the greenhouse from a trade drench application, I'm fairly indifferent on that. But again, we, we've seen that shift where growers want to put that some of those products in there as well. So I, I typically think about 
one of those insecticides going in a water barrel potentially, and then one of those fungicides that I just mentioned. And then the third one that we typically see coming in, and this is really where growers kind of have their own preference, would be something like a transplant water fertilizer. You know, we have seen cases where when we have cool uh, soil conditions that are damp at transplanting, and by cool, I, I generally think of a soil from a tobacco standpoint being fairly cool if the, the temperature is under 65 degrees. But we have seen, you know, a positive response in plant vigor to as little as five pounds of phosphorus in the transplant water. So, you know, there's growers that, that routinely add that to the mix. I don't know that that's necessarily something we have to do. Uh, I generally kind of put that back on the grower as to whether they want to do that or not. You know, we always say that yes, under adverse stressful growing conditions, we can see that increase in early season vigor, but it never amounts to any changes in yield or quality at the end of the growing season. So that's something a grower's got to really make a decision on by their sale. But I see much more value right now with some of the fungicides and insecticides offering early season plant protection pests that we're trying to battle right now. So again, I would I would really stick and focus on some of those pesticides again because I think they're going to have a bigger impact on yield and quality at the end of the day. So you mentioned fertilizer, and we know in 2022 uh, fertilizer availability is a big issue, but can you talk a little bit about just fertilizer timing uh, and how that should ideally work out is with this early season tobacco crop? Sure, sure. So, you know, I think you make a good point that one of the bigger struggles I think we're seeing right now is trying to work on custom blended fertilizers or even finding some products that growers have traditionally used that may have a limited availability or, or you know, they're just a lot more expensive in 2022 than they were in 2021. So, you know, as far as finding these products, we've got a number of things that are gonna work well for our farmers. But I, to your point, I think the timeliness of when those applications are made to the tobacco crop is gonna be the biggest selling point that I can think of. We, at least in my research plots, I don't do any pre-fertilization. So I, I transplant and do all my, my fertility applications and a side dress application after transplanting. That's just my preference. I think we can apply some of our fertilizer before planting and then some side dressed afterwards. I just don't want to see plants growing in the absence of fertilizer more than about maybe seven or 10 days after they've been put in the ground. So if we're gonna really focus on putting out fertilizer after transplanting, I want that first, again, base fertilizer application to be made, again, no more than about a week to 10 days after they're in the ground. Those plants are really trying to put on roots. They're really trying to find and scavenge, scavenge what nutrients are there in the soil. Let's go ahead and give them a little bit of help and I think that's going to get that crop started just as good as anything. Now, I'm fully aware with, you know, larger farm sizes, we've got a lot going on. And that gets a little bit more stressful making a timely fertilizer application if we, again, have some rain that keeps us out of the field. So, again, I think we've got to look at the forecast. We've got to account for the potential for some adverse weather that may keep us from being in the field. But if we can get some fertilizer out again just within that first 10 days, as a base application, I think that'll put us off to a good start. Beyond that, when we talk about some of our lay-by fertilizer applications, we talk about lay-by and that's a little bit, there's some debate as to when lay-by actually is. Is it four weeks after transplanting? Is it six or seven weeks after transplanting? That has a lot to do with growing conditions. 
I would encourage growers to go ahead and make a lay-by fertilizer application, kind of by the calendar. Let's go ahead and do it about four to five weeks after that crop is planted so that we can go ahead and feed that crop again with whatever we typically would apply at lay-by, be it nitrogen or a combination of nitrogen and potassium. Let's go ahead and boost it up again and, and hopefully push this crop along just as good as we can. So I think the timeliness is probably going to be more important than the sources because we've got a wide range of sources that'll work, but crop in the field, getting it established, and then really pushing it along so that we're not dragging out into late September and early October like we traditionally have seen. So we, we addressed a little bit of this question when you talk about transplant water, but you know, we got early season insects and diseases. You talked about black shank, uh, thrips, and flea beetles. Is there anything else we should be looking for or some over-the-top applications of a pesticide to control early season disease or insects? Absolutely. So, Jacob, one of the bigger things, well, let me back up. If, if you asked me out of the blue and said, Matthew, what's our number one disease problem in the state? You know, black shank, granville wilt, that's usually going to be the order. But if we want to talk about the real problems our growers are facing, it's really with our foliar leaf spot diseases. So one of the things that we've, at least on the extension front, tried to do is talk about making an, an earlier post-transplanting application of a foliar fungicide. So when I talk about foliar leaf spot diseases, the big one in the room is going to be target spot. So what we have encouraged growers, particularly growers in the coastal plain that are just really struggling to find control measures for target spot, is to really look at what they traditionally have done. And if you talk to most of our growers in a, a very traditional manner, a lot of them, I guess when uh, we first had products available like Quadris, they would start to make a Quadris application when they saw the disease. And then we had a few years where we saw some early season or mid-season target spots showing up. So they started making some lay-by applications. I think in some cases we're already seeing target spot gain a foothold in these fields by lay-by. So backing up and making a, a quadrus application, uh, again, as you said, a foliar kind of over-the-top application, maybe three or four weeks after transplanting before we've laid the crop by, I think that by itself could lend to managing these problems maybe a little bit more systematically where we're making a, a better preventative application. We're making an application that's probably seven or eight fluid ounces per acre. We're mixing it with about 25 gallon, 20 to 25 gallons of water. So we get good coverage. We really saturate the plant with that fungicide. And it's my hope that that, again, just allows us a little bit better control as we start to get to lay by and we go into that rapid growth phase where, you know, we've got a lot of plant material at that point that we've got to start to manage from a foliar leaf spot disease. So that that's one option I throw out there. When we think about some potential subsequent applications of foliar fungicides and we talk about chemistry rotation, we've got some growers that have found an alternative product in Manzate Pro Stick. So that's an older chemistry that we used a lot, you know, I think in the 80s and early 90s for blue mold management. You see that it does have some control of some of these other foliar leaf spot diseases, particularly in the greenhouse, but we've also got some field control. So growers want to rotate that into the mix. I think that there's an opportunity to do that as well. So, you know, I'm really, I'm really hopeful that our growers can adopt some of this preventative mindset. Let's go ahead and make an early application and then let's make a repeated application of something, you know, 
maybe two weeks later, three weeks later, so that we can stay ahead of the influx of that target spot. Because I think it's going to be easier to get a handle on if we can work on smaller plants as opposed to these bigger plants that are almost fully grown. And you've just got so much vegetation that you've got to, to get into and, and work through. I just think we'll be better off at the end of the growing season and we won't have these problems, hopefully. So again, I think that that earlier application of a product like Quadrus might be in our best bet moving forward. So we have tomato spotted wilt virus pretty bad over here in Jones County through this whole corridor through here. What about over on top orthing application for thrips or something like that to control thrips a little bit after yep. that transplant water runs out? So one of the things that I think about as early as we see tobacco set in, I would say maybe the central coastal plain going in, going down into the southern coastal plain, I think it's going to really come down to looking at the thrips flight monitor that we see coming through the climate office and really trying to tie those thrips flight patterns and dates and I guess the generations back to when the tobacco was transplanted. So I think that's going to be the first thing I would tell a grower is look, let's let's look at this tool and see what it's going to recommend so that we know whether this application is going to have merit or not. Beyond that, you know, we have seen cases where growers, you know, might use a little bit of, again, something like an orthene or an acephate type product. You know, I don't know that that was something that, that Dr. Brack was at when, when she was working with us in entomology was ever terribly keen on. But you think about, you know, some of our, again, our early season insects that we see coming in where growers can use a product like Orphine. You know, again, that's not prohibited from a contract that they've got or some of their buyers. You know, it's a fairly cheap product, got some raw spectrum activity. It might do a decent job cleaning up some of these things and hopefully give growers, again, just a little bit more help in uh, mitigating tomato spotted wilt. I've not, you know, in that same conversation, I've not looked at any of our forecasts just yet. I know that in some places I've seen we had a little bit milder winter. Um, his, historically speaking, it was a little bit milder uh, this year than, you know, we might hope for. I know that we, you have to pair that observation with what kind of tomato spotted wilt virus pressure we saw last year. And I don't think it was anything that was terribly great as far as the pressure goes. So I don't really, I'm, I'm a little bit uncertain right now as far as, you know, what to expect from tomato spotted wilt. But I think that's a very good point, you know, just to remind growers that you've got a pretty useful tool um, that you can access in real time. I would go ahead and check on that tool as I start to plant tobacco just so I've got an idea for whether or not I need to think about one of these foliar products, because if the risk is low based off the tool prediction, it may not be worth it, even as cheap as something like Orthene is going to be. But if you've got high pressure, you know, you really, you're doing all you can to mitigate those problems. So again, it might be worth it if that pressure's there, if it's indicated by the, by the uh, climate tool. The product might be cheap, but diesel's still $5 a gallon. <laughs> That's it. That's that's a, another good way to look at it. It's one more pass across the field. You got to pay somebody to go out there and do it. So, you know, there's a lot of moving parts to that that go beyond just the, the cost of the product. And again, is the payback there? I, I don't really know. My gut feeling is it's probably not as much as we want it to be. And I think about a comment that uh, a retired plant pathologist out of uh, the University of Georgia always would make in a tomato spotted wilt presentation. He always said, you've done about all you can do the transplanter leaves the field, you know, thinking about a infer a transplant water application of an insecticide or a greenhouse application. He says those are 
much more effective in mitigating tomato spotted wilt compared to some of these post-transplanting treatments. But again, you know, if we do run into a really high pressure situation, maybe there's something else in the arsenal. I don't know that we fully have an answer for that, but it's something worth thinking about. Absolutely. The Thrips flight tool is very useful to use. So I'd encourage growers to do that. I'll put that in the show notes. And if you just Google NCSU Thrips flight tool, it'll come right up. And so you can look at that. Uh, is there anything else you think we should discuss before we wrap this thing up, Dr. Van? So one comment that I'll just tack on here at the end and put a plug in since, since you're opening up the floor. You know, we spent a little bit of time uh, at grower meetings this year and our grower meetings last year that we that we offered virtually. We spent a little bit of time pushing, you know, lay-by herbicides and even some potential like early post herbicides. And I'll just remind growers, when we think about weed control, and I've said this now for about two years, we're at the point where sending a labor crew to go in the field and do a little bit of hand weeding to, to try to clean things up, uh, as far as weed escapes go, we're really looking at that costing just about the same as a herbicide application. So I encourage growers to think about some post-over-the-top applications of things like Devernal, uh, certainly post-herbicide, P-O-A-S-T, where we need to clean up some grass that's broken through. But then looking at some lay-by soil banded options with Prowl where they can use it or certainly Devernal again. So I just put a plug in there, uh, again, thinking about labor availability and trying to mitigate some of the cost of labor. That might be something that uh, some of these growers could do. So, again, that's just another thing to think about in between transplant and lay-by where they've not done it before. Dr. Van, we want to thank you for your time today. Absolutely, Jacob. It's always my pleasure to speak with you. So thanks for having me on the show. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out to your local cooperative extension agent, and they'll be happy to come out and help you answer any questions you have about early season tobacco. Production. And if you like this podcast, please subscribe and leave a five-star review. And as always, thanks for listening to CropSense. Because if it isn't making money, it isn't making sense. Thank <laughs> you.